Hello and welcome to Motos and Friends, a weekly podcast brought to you by Ultimate Motorcycling and powered by the all-new Suzuki Hayabusa, the ultimate sport bike. Visit suzukicycles.com to find out more. The ultimate ride awaits. In this first segment, senior editor Nick DeSena talks about the Suzuki SV650. The iconic SV actually came out over 20 years ago, and it can be argued has subsequently become somewhat of a cult classic, especially among the racing fraternity. Despite its age, this inexpensive middleweight still works extremely well, and it has massive aftermarket support should you want to go fast with it. In the second segment, Neil Bailey chats with Chuck Honeycutt, the lead motorcycle restoration expert at the Barber Museum in Leeds, Alabama. Chuck is an ex-racer and arguably the leading restorer of racing motorcycles in the country. Needless to say, Chuck also gets to ride a lot of them, perhaps the most interesting one of which is the astounding Britain V1000, which is actually displayed on the top floor of the museum, appropriately just outside the new design centre. Chuck rode the Britain several times, so we get to hear his thoughts on that, among other things. We hope you enjoy this episode. Are you ready for this? The all-new 2022 Suzuki Hayabusa motorcycle is here. Widely regarded as the ultimate sport bike, the third-generation Hayabusa by Suzuki melds two generations of refinement, resulting in the quickest, most technologically advanced and aerodynamic Hayabusa yet. Led by the Suzuki Intelligent Ride System, the new Hayabusa gives riders electronic rider aids like the quick shifter and cruise control systems that simultaneously increase performance and comfort. With even stronger acceleration, the Hayabusa's 1340cc inline four-cylinder engine and updated driveline deliver unmatched sport bike performance. And, staying true to its iconic design, the new Hayabusa's straighter and sharper lines make it the most aerodynamic Hayabusa ever. Plus, it comes in three new head-turning color combinations and offers a full suite of available Suzuki Genuine accessories that you can choose from. These revolutionary superbikes are flying off the showroom floor, so head into your local Suzuki dealer now or Visit suzukicycles.com to learn more. The ultimate ride awaits. The SV is one of those sort of stalwart middleweight motorcycles. And when we go back a few years and you think about a traditional middleweight bike, um, you know, something that is in the 500 to 650 cc range, the SV650 is a name that has not only come up you know, consistently through history, but it's still a very relevant motorcycle when we're talking about the Japanese middleweight bikes. And for good reason. I mean, the, you know, 650 V-twin engine is just, it's a bit of a peach, you know, it's just, it's got a great low end, you know, lots of mid-range. Cool. And it doesn't really fall on its face when you really start ringing it out. It does lose power up top when you're kind of approaching the, uh, the red line. Um, but, you know, it, it just doesn't fall flat. But, uh, right. yeah, you know, the SV is, a, you know, a fun little bike. And uh, it's still hanging tough after all these years. I mean, obviously, the slim profile of the 
um, or the slim frontal area, I should say, of the V-twin also makes for a relatively light bike. I mean, back in my day, back in my racing days, there were a lot of race bike conversions from SV650s. Um, it just had that really good balance of stability, yet, yet quick turning. So I, I think there's a lot of people over the years have, have been riding around on 650s that have surprised a lot of people on much bigger bikes. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's a lot of potential with the SV. And to me, now that it's, it's aged to, to a certain point, and if you look at the overall class, um, kind of what it, it's, its true competitors are, because when we say middleweight in 2022 or 2021, um, you know, that, that's a really broad spectrum. People could be talking about bikes like the SV650, or they could be talking about things like the new Ducati Monster or MT09, which really, in my opinion, are not middleweights. Um, those are sort of super middleweights, but we're focusing in right. on the true middleweights. So things that are 500 to, you know, 650 cc. And, um, where the SV650 fits in, you know, it is the, the sort of oldest moniker of the bunch, really. But um, to me, it, it comes off as kind of like the, the street version of the KLR um, 650. You know, if you think about the KLR's presence in the, the dual sport and kind of off-road segment, it's that, you know, and I, and I mean this in a very positive way, it's that blunt tool for the job. You know, people love their KLRs because of their simplicity. You know, recently sure. the KLR just got uh, fuel injection for the first time, but right. um, in, a, in a handful of other updates, but realistically it's an affordable motorcycle that can do a lot because again, of its simplicity. So people are willing to push it further, push it harder, and no, it does not have the refined suspension of more expensive motorcycles, or it may not have, um, you know, the electronic aids of more expensive motorcycles. But that's sort of besides the point for that type of buyer. And the SV650, you know, because of how long it's been on the market and, you know, how long this V-twin has been around, it's kind of going in that direction a little bit without sort of the... I would say some of the, the other descriptors that we can apply to the KLR, you know, the SV in its class, you know, we're talking about the Kawasaki Z650, the CB650R, the Trident 660, uh, Yamaha MT07, 60 even if you want to push that, um, you know, it's still a competitive bike within its segment and it still has a lot to offer against a lot of bikes that have been updated um, much more aggressively or are just simply far, far newer platforms overall, if we talk about the Aprilia. But uh, no, it's still that, that you know, really true to form V-twin experience. And, uh, you know, in a class that's dominated by parallel twins. And um, yeah, yeah, it's just, for me, the SV, SV650 is the engine. And that, that's kind of the big talking point for me. <laughs> Yeah, I, I totally agree. The thing I like about, about the SV650 is it's a really good, capable, inexpensive motorcycle that feels a lot more substantial than, than you would imagine. It's a full-size bike. It doesn't feel small or diminutive. So if somebody's, if it's a young person on a relative budget, 
they'll get the SB650, they'll love it, it'll do everything they want it to do, they can have fun in the canyons, they can commute on it, it's just a great all-rounder. But it has, because of its just its length of life and that motor, it has this amazing upgrade path. So if that person improves their skills and they decide to go off and do a track day or, or what have you, you can put sticky tires on it and you'd probably want to upgrade the suspension if you wanted to start going quick. But I mean, it's, it's got a very obvious upgrade path to it. So I can see somebody kind of financing an SV650 and actually getting as far as paying it off before they trade it in. <laughs> you know, I mean, I can see it being a sort of a relatively long-term purchase. And people that I know that have had or, or have SV650s, they've had them for years. I mean, actually decades in a couple of times, a couple of, uh, couple of instances. So it seems to be this really good catch-all kind of bike with this great upgrade path. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the SV is, you know, in, in this, going back to the KLR, you know, people use KLRs for just a whole lot of different things, you know, whether it's touring or dual sporting or whatever. Um, and the SV is one of those street bikes that can fill a lot of roles without too much modification. I mean, we all know the sort of uh, track heritage of the SV650, people doing tons of twins racing on it. Um, you know, it was, uh, it still is an extremely popular platform in the twins class for Moto America. Um, you know, going back to even Gen 1 SV650s, uh, you know, it, it's just always been a really good, solid um, track and, and road racing platform. Beyond that, you know, for someone totally typical, it's just a solid street bike where, like you said, they can have fun in the canyons, commute, throw some bags on it, do a little bit more. And, um, you know, talking about some of the other points you mentioned, it, it really does feel like a substantial motorcycle because when you look at the, the middleweight class, some of those bikes tend to feel a bit small. And, you know, that, that starts bringing up points with, um, you know, geometry and just physical size. Like, for example, when I think about a, a Yamaha MT-09, that's a relatively small motorcycle, uh, at least in my opinion, for someone that stands at five foot, 10 inches. You're talking about the MT-09 or the MT-07? Sorry, 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 correct. The, the MT-07, you know, that's right. a, a relatively compact motorcycle that, you know, feels light, agile, it's very whippy, um, but right. it, it is appreciably smaller than an MT-09. Whereas you grab an SV650 and because of the V-twin layout, the cylinders are aimed forward. So the bike has to be physically longer than some of its uh, parallel twin boasting competitors. Um, and it's more relative to a, you know, thousand cc whatever uh size motorcycle so it's it's wheelbase is of that ilk and um you know the the thing that makes the the sv feel small in comparison to other motorcycles say like a, a gsx s 750 or gsx s 1000 um the main point is that one it has a relatively low seat height not you know incredibly small but um it's actually um, one of the lower in class, but doesn't necessarily feel that way. 
comes in at a 30.9 inches. Um, is the what makes it small is the, the handlebars they're they're quite narrow so in that sense i do feel like i'm doing a little bit of the the old t-rex arms or your elbows are pulled in <laughs> I, mean, I think if i owned an sv i would put some bigger bars on it just to feel a little bit more normal but other than that if you think about its length front to back um it's width the way that the the saddle is designed it really does feel like a a mature bike which is kind of why a lot of riders get SV650s and then fall in love with them and just kind of stick with them. And, you know, for the other, other reasons that you mentioned is that they have a huge aftermarket support. So, you know, the engine's been around forever. Yes, it has been updated numerous times by Suzuki over the years, but by and large, it really is the same V-twin that came out with the, the Gen 1 a number of years ago. Um, but again, you know, the, that's that's kind of what what I enjoy about it is um, it feels a little bit more substantial than some of its competitors in the class like the MT-07. Um, that's the one that really sticks out in my mind is feeling kind of like the the smallest of the bunch. Um, and the other thing that that kind of factors into that too is that it is heavier than a lot of the bikes um, in its class too. So it really just feels like a a much more mature sort of you know, full, full size motorcycle it comes in at a claimed 438 pounds, which is a bit porky these days, you know, in comparison to the rest of the class, but the other bikes are considerably newer as well. So it does make sense that, uh, it would beat it out in those regards, but, you know, of course the other, <clears throat> the other competitor is potentially the Kawasaki Z650. Yes. Um, and in fact, I'm sure you remember, but a few years ago, we actually did a, a comparison between the three. Yeah. yeah. And it was interesting because I remember at the time, it was easy to dismiss the SV650 as, well, it's sort of dated and it's big and it's old and it's heavy and what have you. But every time we rode it, we kind of found ourselves liking the bike. Yeah. yeah. It got that sort of stealth approach where it's easy to dismiss it because it's not necessarily the latest and the greatest and, and the hottest. I mean, that Kawasaki Z650 is such a good looking little bike. And it's, but as you say, it, it, it feels much smaller. It feels a lot less substantial. So I'm not gonna say anything bad about it, but I'm just saying that the SV650 felt really, just felt like a real man's bike to me. Um, I don't want to dismiss our female audience, but you, you, you get the point. It just yeah. felt like a it felt like a real motorcycle, and it did anything and everything we asked of it. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's sort of you know going to its design. I mean, it is a little bit older than you know, primarily the MT-07 and the uh, Ninja 650 and the Z650. But um, I would say a lot of it comes down to the fact that you're dealing with a, a V-twin, which just produces much more torque at the bottom end compared to the, the parallel twins. And also just the way that the, the engine cool. functions. I mean, it, it revs up in not necessarily the same energetic way as the, the MT-07, which I feel spools up much more aggressively and just to be, you know, put it in, in, in even more simplistic terms, just revs up much faster. The, the, 
the SV650's V-twin just has that classic meaty kind of chunky V-twin um, personality to it. So you get a lot of good low ends, good mid range, and it does rev out. The important thing with the SV650 that I was really kind of thinking about and what it really drew me into the bike um, is just the fact that it's so tractable. And even when you start pushing the engine, it never really runs away from you. At the same time, you know, for road riding, especially just thinking about it in complete road context, never really asking for more power in, you know, tight, twisty canyon roads that are surrounding Malibu, California, because, you know, above the 70-ish the horsepower that the SV650 makes on a dyno, it, you know, above that, it's sort of wasted in tight, twisty roads. Whereas this thing, you can kind of go in a gear too tall, just whack the throttle open and, you know, it, it's all good. Um, you know, and then going back to the way the bike feels and its seating position and just how it handles, you know, I would say that the SV handles a little bit slower in comparison to the, you know, many of the other uh, middleweight bikes. And I would attribute that mainly to its longer wheelbase. You know, if we think about the, the Kawasaki Ninja 650 or the MT-07 in particular, you're looking at bikes that have uh, significantly smaller wheelbases. <clears throat> so the SV is longer in terms of its wheelbase. Um, the shortest of the bunch is the Tuono 660, which that thing handles impressively well. But uh, the SV just has a very stable nature to it. So, you know, that, that's something that I think a lot of riders, whether they like, even know it or not, will appreciate it um, for its stability. So if you're coming up from a, you know, a more entry-level motorcycle, say something like a, you know, 300cc range single cylinder going to this bike, the, the stability that it offers is quite good. And, uh, you know, that's, that's just one of those, those uh, qualities that have really stuck with the SV throughout the years. And, uh, you know, I, something I, I quite like. Yeah, I'm, to I'm totally with you on that. So <clears throat> have they done any sort of recent updates for it? I, I mean, uh, obviously it's fuel injected, um, but is there anything else that they've done to it in, in the last few years? No, the last major update was in 17, and there were a handful of tweaks back then, um, you know, aesthetic tweaks. Uh, one of the things that I do remember from, from 17 um, was that they, they instituted a sort of a start assist. I'm not really using their marketing nomenclature correctly, but essentially it, it brought the revs up as you start um, releasing the clutch and uh, just helped you get off the line, basically. A sort of stall preventer device. Yeah. I mean, obviously this bike is going to appeal to, as we say, sort of um, not just intermediate riders, but potentially even, you know, entry level riders. Yeah, the SV has always had that broad spectrum of buyers where someone that's just getting their license can often find themselves on an SV650, someone that's an intermediate rider and then becomes an advanced rider. They could do that all from the saddle of an SV650. Um, and then also advanced riders that are just looking for something to, uh, you know, rip around on, commute, maybe build into a track bike. They'll often find themselves in the presence of an SV. So it is one of those bikes that 
has become a, a, a catch-all for writers across the spectrum. And that's, that's pretty rare if you think about it. I mean, the, the other bike that I can think, think of that does that in a modern context is the MT-07. A lot of people have used those for a lot of different purposes, including, you know, racetrack, commuting, and, uh, you know, just general, general fun riding. Um, but, you know, the, those, these two bikes, you know, the MT-07 and the, the SV take a pretty, pretty different approach. In 17, they did do a little bit of massaging to the engine. Again, it's still the same core, uh, you know, S SV650 motor that we know and love. There's a handful of updates to the, to the aesthetics as well, kind of bringing it back to the old school round headlight um, pre-gladius phase of uh, the SV650. We'll, we'll call that, um, you know, it's uh, angsty teen years between um, I think it was 09 <laughs> to 17. Um, and uh, the Gladius was also the, the first year that it, it went from the aluminum uh, frame to the, the steel trellis. And uh, the steel trellis still carries on today. But um, yeah, you know, a, a lot hasn't changed since uh, the Gladius. That was, that was kind of one of the bigger changes. Um, you know, it's still using the same same suspension and uh, braking components. You know, interestingly, on the suspension front, I would say it's also damped and spring rates are probably relative, but maybe just a tad heavier. But definitely the damping feels a little bit more substantial on the SV compared to a lot of its uh, competitors, particularly the, the Japanese competitors. Sure. Um, you know, just again, it matches the personality of the bike where it just feels a little bit more substantial than the others. doesn't really take things too far. It is definitely stiffer to just put a simplistic uh, descriptor on it. And, and I would say, you know, the fork does really well. Um, I never had any issues with excessive diving or anything like that. The one thing I will say is that the shock definitely can get overwhelmed on some of the, the more bumpier bits, you know, those, those harder compression bumps, you'll, you'll feel them doesn't necessarily upset the bike, but you can definitely tell that you're sort of losing grip. If you're cornering over that stuff, it, and, and I want to kind of hone in on that for a second, you know, on some bikes that that have lighter suspension, say stuff like the MT-07 or Ninja 650, when you're cornering aggressively and you hit some of those bigger compression bumps, you can definitely unsettle the, the chassis to a, a higher degree. And the SV isn't as susceptible to that, um, that same issue, uh, mainly because it just has, you know, heavier damping, uh, you know, compression or rebounds at both ends. Um, you'll still definitely feel it. So I think uh, if you were to upgrade the SV650 suspension, you'd be doing you know, yourself a big favor as you start building those skills or you know, want to take the bike in a different direction, more performance oriented or whatnot, or just simply just get better suspension. Sure. Because uh, what we have on hand is you know, pretty bare bones stuff, uh, non-adjustable fork, and um, you have a shock that offers um, preload adjustment only. Sure. You know, simple stuff to match its its relatively affordable uh, price point, which uh, currently, if you were to pick up the ABS model that we have, is seven thousand seven hundred forty nine dollars. Wow, that's really very inexpensive, isn't it? It's in the ballpark of the of the class. You know, a lot of the middleweight bikes are in that seven to 
$8,000 range. Um, the Honda and the Aprilia are the outliers in that case. The Honda is actually just a little bit above $9,000, the Honda CB650R. However, in the Honda's case, you get two more cylinders than everyone else in the class because it is a four-cylinder instead of a, a V-twin or a parallel twin. And then the Tuono 660 is the most advanced of the bunch, um, coming in with all sorts of whiz-bang electronics like traction control and, and uh, corner and ABS and whatnot, and uh, you know has a, an up-down quick shifter um, as an optional uh, accessory. But um, you know that's just kind of scratching the surface. The Tuono, it's it's overall an, an extremely advanced motorcycle uh, for the class, but that's you know, a uh, conversation for a different day. Um, but again, you know, the, the SV it's, it's, it's one of those bikes that, like you said earlier, you, you kind of want to knock because you're like, man, it's really, it's really been around. And then you get on it and you're like, oh, you know, kind of still got a lot going for it. I, I would say stacked up against the current competition. It definitely needs to refresh its looks. Yeah, no, I get, I get the point. I mean, yes, I would say the most obvious upgrade path, you know, immediately is a rear shock. Um, you know, the, the, the rear shock is, is currently very adequate, um, but it is, it is adequate. And I think it's just simply because the chassis is so forgiving. The numbers are so, so good on it. And, and it's, uh, it's so stable that it will forgive a lot of problems that the rear shock passes through to the chassis. So on a, on a more aggressively numbered motorcycle, um, like some of the other ones you've mentioned, um, if the rear shock is too soft, then you get, like you say, you get chucked offline and all sorts of things happen. Um, but, but with the SV, it's more than capable. So if somebody if they can't afford to do anything else and they buy the SV650, they will be able to ride it aggressively and they won't get into trouble with it. Um, but certainly, as you say, if you start to, to get somewhere, then um, first first thing to do is to put a new shock on it and then keep going yeah, from there. Yeah, definitely. And, and that's sort of the, the cool thing with the SV is because of its age, um, and there are plenty of bikes that we can think of uh, this way. If we think about the previous... Um, generation Jixer, the aftermarket support for that was just almost encyclopedic sure it's actually suzuki again uh you know with the new hayabusa they made oh, they yeah. made a oh, yeah. conscious decision to stay with the the same engine architecture because of the aftermarket support for it it was like well yeah. wait a minute we could change it for the sake of changing it so that we can you know, waffle on in marketing speak about, oh, we've, you know, bought it out a little bit, or we've changed this or changed that. In practice, it won't make much difference. And all of a sudden, all the aftermarket bits that exist are no longer applicable. So I think it was very smart of them to, to keep exactly the same engine architecture and focus on other areas of the bike. Um, yeah. And the SV sort of falls into that as well. It's like, you know, it's the old thing of, you know, don't fix it if it ain't broken. Yeah, 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 and the SV is has has all the upgrade path that you need, um, and at the same time, if you choose not to upgrade it for whatever reason, you've got a great bike anyway. So, um, yeah. so moving along, I mean, what about something like the braking? I seem to remember the brakes were a little soft. I mean, again, adequate, very adequate. You could probably put aggressive pads on it, I would think. 
But uh, what, yeah. what, what were your thoughts on the brakes? Yeah, so when we're talking about brakes, the brakes that are on the, the SV have been on it for quite a while. Um, you know, it has a four piston Tokiko calipers, which were on and probably still are on a number of different uh, Suzuki's and, and Yamaha's for that matter. Uh, it uses 290 millimeter discs, so a little old school. But, um, you know, interestingly, I actually like the brakes quite a bit. You know, um, I was just riding it, you know, yesterday in uh, Malibu, uh, so hitting some of those, those canyon roads. And although the system is sort of a bit older, I, I felt that it had, you know, good bite. There was actually, a, a, you know, a, more than a fair amount of feel. And, you know, just like a lot of the other components on this bike, I think that you could upgrade the braking system without doing too much, you know, so you could definitely just go ahead and, and pop on some um, steel braided brake lines, um, go to a more aggressive pad if that's what you're looking for, just a little bit more bite. Um, and then again, just because of its age, you know, the, the amount of rotors that are available uh, for this bike are insane. I mean, I know of one uh, brake supplier that I use for a lot of my personal stuff, uh, racing my my Ninja 400 uh, brake tech out in, um, I think he's in Temecula. Uh, he's kind of a, you know, SV650 parts aficionado, same thing with Spears, uh, Spears Enterprises up in Northern California, Greg Spears. He's one of the sort of SV650 um, tuning masters in on the west coast and uh yeah you can upgrade the brakes pretty significantly without doing too much but um no they're not radially mounted they're axial and that's because it uses the old school uh non-inverted fork um so you know there are some some kits to to mount on heavier duty kits or braking systems if you want to go that direction but overall pretty happy with this in a street context at least um you know the rear brake totally totally competent you know good for load speed maneuvering things like that um you know one thing that i will kind of pick up on and uh this kind of goes back to it's even though it is uh, fuel injected modern fuel injection system doesn't use maps or anything like that so it doesn't have ride by wire throttle um Riding a bike with mechanical throttle is kind of interesting because it's not something that I do all that frequently unless I'm riding, you know, like my 400 race bike or more entry level machines. But realistically, a lot of motorcycles these days have ride by wire throttles. And what I notice is just how good the throttle response on this bike is outside of there's just this really kind of um uh, it can get a little bit jumpy on that initial crack of throttle at low rpm um probably around maybe 42 maybe 4500 rpm if you're kind of just getting a little bit lazy with it in the canyons you can introduce a little bit of snatchiness but other than that it's just super clean feeling um and it, in a lot of respects it, it does much better than than a lot of a modern of, uh, or in a lot of respects, it does much better than a lot of modern ride-by-wire bikes that struggle with 
with fueling issues and snatchiness. So, you know, just because something's older doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. It's kind of interesting to see how that's played out over the years. You know, some brands have really struggled with ride-by-wire throttles and, uh, and, you know, getting fueling right. And some brands have done much better. So typically it's the Italians that do really good jobs with their ride-by-wire throttles um, and Triumph. But um, yeah, you know, it, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, it's, I mean, overall, I would say, you know, a, a bike that's been around this long also equals a bike that is really evolved. And yeah. everything on this bike is, there's nothing on it that's too much. So if you had this really top level front fork and brakes, it would really, it would be a complete waste. It would increase the, the price too much. There's no point in doing it because it matches perfectly the rest of the bike. So you, you end up with, like, as I said at the beginning, you've got a, an inexpensive bike that works perfectly in every kind of situation that you could possibly want, really, on the street. And it's only if you start to get up to real expert level and you start to really ride this thing hard that you're going to start thinking about wanting to upgrade various parts on it. Um, yeah. And there's plenty of it available. Yeah, so, sure. so overall, I'd just say it's a really evolved motorcycle that's great value for money and it's easy to ride and, and it, there, thereby lies its appeal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, when I was riding, I was thinking, well, oh, man, you know, this thing hasn't been updated in you know, quite a long while if we think about its competitors. And I, I think the, the main thing that the SV650 is lacking now um, isn't necessarily its rideability, um, you know, its performance, uh, its functionality, because there is a good parity, as you mentioned, between its components. You know, um, if they did put an upside down fork on it, as much as I'd appreciate it, that would definitely jack up the price significantly. And um, the performance benefit, well, it might not be all that great. Um, you know, if they did go to a, an upspec model with fully adjustable suspension and in an upside down fork and yada, 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 and better brakes. I think a lot of people would appreciate that, but they have to understand that that's going to kick the price up quite a bit. I think what exactly. Suzuki could do uh, quite easily, and I say this as a non-engineer or uh, finance uh, employee, <laughs> any manufacturers, but right. just update its looks. Um, you know, the SV650 has always been kind of the, the poor man's Ducati monster. And even the monster had to go through a very heavy revision recently with regards to its aesthetics. And the SV is definitely throwing back to a, a, an older generation of, of motorcycle styling. Still has the round headlight, which I think is a good thing. You know, it calls back to the original SVs. But there's other aspects that I do think could be updated, namely with the seat. So as much as I like the seating position, it's nice and low, very accommodating for riders of, uh, you know, a wide variety of sizes. It has that sort of old school Jixxer uh, 600, Jixxer 750 and 1000 tail section, kind of a little bit stink buggy where the, the seat kind of scoop, scoops up and back. And what I noticed that did to me is sort of constantly made me slide into the, the fuel tank. So if I was riding aggressively and moving around in the saddle and usually pushed more forward, 
that was not really an issue. But if I was trying to ride in a little bit more relaxed position or riding downhill, kind of found myself always getting that weird little scoop forward. And, um, you know, the, the MT, the previous generation MT-09 used to do that to me as well. And they have since flattened the seat to kind of prevent that. But, um, you know, updating the seat, I think would be really cool for the, the SV650. And then also upgrading the dash because it's just a, you know, run of the mill LCD, um, you know, basic, basic dash. It's clearly legible. You can see everything that you need to see in a glance, um, but pretty old school when you compare it to the, the other offerings, especially the Ninja 650 or the, um, the Trident 660 or the Aprilia Tuono, which all have, you know, full color TFT dashes and the, the uh, Ninja 650 and the Z650 really don't uh, beat it out in terms of pricing. It's right there in the same ballpark. Um, so again, with just a couple little, you know, um, styling updates, I think the SV could be right up there with a lot of its competitors in that regard, because like we said before, performance wise, you know, it's, it, it's got some good balance and some parity that you don't necessarily want to totally screw up just yet but looks wise as we all know a lot of people buy bikes based on looks so it could definitely get you know get a little bit of a makeup all right well um thank you very much i appreciate your insight and uh into the suzuki sv650 um, yeah of course we'll we'll move right along yeah okay all cool. right thanks for having me In this second segment, Neil Bailey chats with Chuck Honeycutt, the lead motorcycle restoration expert at the Barber Museum. Chuck is an ex-racer and arguably the leading restorer of racing motorcycles in the country. Chuck was fortunate enough to ride the astounding Britain V1000, which is displayed on the top floor of the museum, appropriately just outside the new design centre. Chuck rode the Britain several times, so we get to hear his thoughts on that. Are you ready for this? The all-new 2022 Suzuki Hayabusa motorcycle is here. Widely regarded as the ultimate sport bike, the third-generation Hayabusa by Suzuki melds two generations of refinement, resulting in the quickest, most technologically advanced and aerodynamic Hayabusa yet. Led by the Suzuki Intelligent Ride System, the new Hayabusa gives riders electronic rider aids like the quick shifter and cruise control systems that simultaneously increase performance and comfort. With even stronger acceleration, the Hayabusa's 1340cc inline four-cylinder engine and updated driveline deliver unmatched sport bike performance. And staying true to its iconic design, the new Hayabusa's straighter and sharper lines make it the most aerodynamic Hayabusa ever. Plus, it comes in three new head-turning color combinations and offers a full suite of available Suzuki Genuine accessories that you can choose from. These revolutionary superbikes are flying off the showroom floor, so head into your local Suzuki dealer now or visit suzukicycles.com to learn more. The ultimate ride awaits. I am with Chuck Honeycutt. 
and we are in the Advanced Design Center. So as you know, Chuck is the lead restoration expert in the motorcycle department at the Barber Museum in the race department, correct Chuck? Yes. So we will see. And you have been working for Barber for? 27 years. 27 years. So basic intro, 27 years as restoration expert for Barber and of course obviously started as a racer. Where did you start? Like born, raised? Uh, I'm from Hope Hall, Alabama, which is a little town about 20 miles south of Montgomery, um, out in the country, and I have four brothers. I'm the fourth in line, next to the youngest. Uh, my brothers had motorcycles, and I think I rode my first bike. My brother let me sit in front of him on the gas tank on a Honda CB160, and I was probably six or seven years old and that started it and it hasn't ended <laughs> hasn't got any better is what you want to say pardon it hasn't got any better no no my mother used to tell me um in my adult life she said i'll be glad when you grow out of this but i don't think it's ever going to happen <laughs> you know my mother has been waiting for me to grab it <laughs> <laughs> mothers don't like motorcycles no, they think that it's something you're mm -hmm. going to give up, right? Mm -hmm. yep. Oh, when you oh when you grow out of it, it'll yep. be fine, right? Yep. So when did you first ride a motorcycle? Um, gosh, my neighbors uh, had a little Z50s. I didn't have a bike then. My brother still had bikes, but you know, I was still, I don't know, eight, ten years old. Anyway, they had Z50s, and that was probably the first bike I rode. To be honest, I don't remember my first ride, but I'm sure that's what it was. And I used to watch them ride those things, and I just I lusted after them. You know, I really wanted one. So finally, my parents bought me a little um, Honda. I think it was a CT70, and. Um, I rode that thing, God, I don't know how many miles. Rode it every day, all the time. Anytime I could ride it, I would. And what age were you now? I was probably 12 by then. Okay. So the interesting thing about your career, just to jump forward to come back, is, I mean, you're not only, obviously, a master mechanic expert in terms of the mechanical world, but you're also a very accomplished racer. So did you know as a youngster that you were more interested in riding or... The mechanical end of it or did they both trans did they come around hand in hand or they probably came hand in hand because my parents didn't have a whole lot of money and we lived out in the country and it was hard to get to the shop so i kind of had to learn how to fix things and i guess i was always mechanically inclined um i used to love to take things apart and i still do and i used to get in trouble as a kid sometimes i would take things apart and couldn't put them back together like watches. I, I was fascinated with watches. I used to take them apart and those things are, I mean, for a little kid, I could never really put them back together. Anyway, I used to get in trouble for that because, you know, <laughs> I made something useless out of something that worked. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. So, so you were riding the bikes and working on the bikes. 
did you get to a certain age and then get a street bike for school or work or uh, that little CT70 that's about the time I discovered girls too what are those huh? <laughs> <laughs> so um, a friend of the family he was a veterinarian and he lived in Selma which is about 50 miles from where I live he had a daughter and you know we got along real nice and all that so one day I decided to go see her <laughs> I was 12 years old I didn't have a license anything so <laughs> My mo when I the morning I decided to go see her my on the C seventy, huh? Yeah. Knew something was up. I guess by the way I was acting or whatever. You know, I was like preparing to go off to war. I think. <laughs> <laughs> so she kind of asked me, "What are you doing?" I said, oh, "I'm just going to ride." So anyway, I went to see her on a little CT seventy at forty miles an hour going down a four lane highway, <laughs> no license, <laughs> no tag. <laughs> I made it there, I saw her, came back home, took me all day to do this. <laughs> I got in serious trouble about that. From her parents or from your parents? No, from my parents. Oh yeah, yeah. So did they take you off the CT-70 no. at that point? No, no. no. But you were just banned from... No, nothing really happened. I think they kind of laughed about it behind my back. <laughs> <laughs> so you went to CT, so presumably when you left did you go to college? Did you go to mechanical school? No, I didn't. Um, after I got out of high school, I decided to try electronics. So I went to trade school for that. Um, but the guys that were graduating from that were making less money than I was doing what I was doing. So I kind of gave that up. I never finished that. I what, were you, what were you doing that was making you more money at that time? Motorcycle mechanic in a dealership. Oh, okay. I just thought I wanted to try to something To try different. something, yeah. I'm glad I did because I learned a lot about that. And I still use it a little bit today. Yeah, it's presumably it's mm -hmm. been served you well in your career, I would think. Yeah. So when you were in the dealership, what were the bikes you were working on? Uh, whatever came in, you know. And this would year-wise would be what? Well, this was about after I got out of high school, I worked in some factories down south. One of them was a glass factory, which made beer bottles of all things. Um, that was kind of tough. You know, that's um, they couldn't shut the thing down because the furnaces, you know, they had to keep going. So it was a 24/7 thing. So they had what they called a swing shift. They had four shifts. So one week you'd work, say, 12 to 8, then be off two days, and then you'd work 8 to whatever. And, but it really messed with you because you never got to sleep the same every week. I think it would have made an old man out of me, but yeah. I got away from that. It was good money. It was a union job, but I just didn't really like it because it was just tough. You know. Mm. Anyway, went back to motorcycles and kind of been doing this ever since. So you were in the dealership working on Japanese, British, American, Japanese, all Japanese at yep. that point. Yeah. And what would the what would the bikes of that era have been? Um. Well, to start with, there were Suzuki. I worked in a Suzuki Kawasaki shop, 
which was the GS-1000s in that era. So you were sort of the era where we were getting CV carbs and electronic ignition. Yes. And yes. But did days. you have background in the earlier stuff with points and drum brakes and all of those earlier bikes? A little bit. Uh, my brother's bikes. My brother had a Triumph Bonneville, which it was. I don't remember if it had disc brakes or not. I think it was drum brakes. <coughs> but anyway, that's kind of an old school thing and. You know, I learned a lot from that thing because it was maintenance intensive. Although he did most of it, I just kind of got to hang out and watch. Yeah, so you were learning stuff. Yeah. He was a bit like Fonzie back in the day. You know, he was, <laughs> he had a big Triumph 650, which at that time was the super bike of the time. Oh, you know? yeah. So he was bringing the girls home. Kinda, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when you, so you work in a dealership, and there's obviously there's a point where you meet Mr. Barber and your life changed, or had you started racing before you met him? How did you get from the dealership to Barber? Well, <coughs> um, some friends of mine, we used to go out on what we called Sunday rides a lot. Oh, yeah, yeah. And this was back in the Kawasaki Z1 days and, you know, those days. They were really fast motorcycles, but they were terrible handling things. So we used to go out on Sunday rides and we had a little route that we do which was about 50 miles long. So the cops got wise to us and they staked us out one day. So we all got big tickets but we kept doing it anyway. So people started crashing and getting hurt and I thought this is crazy. I want to do this but I don't need to be doing it out there, so I decided to go racing. So the first race I did was at Road Atlanta. Um, I had a GPZ 550, and I had no idea what I was getting into. Back in those days, you know, you have to go through schools and all that now. You didn't really have to do that You just then. showed up and rode. Yeah. You just give me your money and here you go. So was your GPZ, was it the Unitrack or the Twin Shot? Unitrack. So it was 83 or beyond. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I don't know if you know that I I have a little history with the 83 GPZ. That was a good motorcycle. I rode one to Peru, so not road racing, but yeah, so I have a real affection for that model. So anyway, they had a little school and the guy recommended I do it, so I did, and it was, it was good. They, you know, told you what the flags meant and what to do and stuff like that. So I had the idea in my head, I would usually lead everybody on their Sunday rides. So I thought, you know, I'll probably do okay with this. <laughs> the, the first lap in practice when they turned us loose with the racers, yeah. the second lap, turn one, a guy passed me on the outside on what I think was a TZ250, going about twice as fast as I was, oh, yeah. about two inches from me, and I thought, what am I doing out here? <laughs> So when the race time came, I raced and I finished dead last and I was happy with that. Right. <laughs> I was happy it was over. <laughs> I had fun, but... So that was your first race, GPZ 550, bone stock, racing TZ, TZ250s and finished bone last. Yep. So this is a... <laughs> I guess it's all up from here. It only has to get better, right? Yeah. Um, so my family didn't like all that. They heavily discouraged me from doing all that kind of stuff. 
and you know that kind of weighed on me so I kind of kicked it back and didn't do it for a little while after that but I couldn't get away from it it's just something I wanted to do you're sort of bitten by that first experience yeah, yeah. So anyway, I started doing it more and got better and better. And Were you still on the GPZ? Yeah, I raced that for, I don't know, two or three years. Now, did you modify that in any way? Or no. no. So just maintained it and rode it? Yeah. And, yeah. I figured it was faster than I was, so, and I didn't really have the money to do all that. So I just left it production. So where did you go from the GPZ? Um, I believe I bought an RZ350 after that. That was a good bike. I so presumably you'd seen a bunch of them come by you yeah. at the track and thought, oh, this is the way to go to get yeah. faster. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Thought about a TZ, but I couldn't afford one. I mean, I was, I really couldn't afford to go racing at all, but. Mechanics wages. And yeah. Yeah. So the RZ did me w well for a few years. Um, and about that time, the GSXR came out. So, my brother and I, my brother started racing with me too. He got dragged into it, so he came along too. Uh, he did a GPZ also, but he bought an FJ600, mm. which that was a pretty good bike for that class at the time. He did pretty well with it. So we decided to go together and buy a GSX-R750 and go endurance racing. So we did, and that worked pretty well, but he didn't like that bike. I loved it. He hated it. Mm. So that didn't last but about a year. Was that the original 86? Yep. So 18-inch wheels and yep. skinny tires. And yep. Yeah. At the time, that was it a was bit of a handful, or was it? Oh yeah, it was fast. Yeah. I mean, for that time, that was a really fast motorcycle. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I think it was really one of the first replica racers, if you will. Didn't you have a, a limited edition? one of those here at the we do. museum that's got the dry clutch and all this, mm -hmm. the kit parts, which of course would have been unobtainable to you at that time. Yeah, they were much more expensive. Um, yeah. So we did that for a little while and then um, I bought an FCR 400 and so did he. So we went racing with those and I did, that was a you know, sometimes a motorcycle, you just click with it. That's a bike that I clicked with, and I really did great on that thing. I had a wonderful time on that bike. That's probably, out of all the bikes I've ever owned, that was my favorite bike. Um, and I kept it production for most of its life. The last year I, I raced it, I tried to go super bike racing with it, and that, I don't know, that takes a lot of money to do that. I didn't have any sponsors really, so. But anyway, um, and I did mostly Weira stuff. And at the time, Weira, what they did was, um, they watched your practice times and then Saturday was kind of like the qualifying race. And however you finished in that race was how you started the final on Sunday. Well, I got to the point where I didn't even go on Saturday. Just put me in the back of the pack, I don't care. I could still win. Is that right? Yeah. So, yeah. That bike, me and that bike just got along really good. Mm. Was it fairly stock or had you put shock springs? Pipes? Yeah, it had, you know, shocks and stuff on it. But yeah, yeah. But just about had to do that because the shocks at the time were awful. Mm. Mm. So 
that kind of ended, and I pretty much retired from racing then. Um, and then a friend of mine came to work for Mr. Barber at the old museum. Was that um, Joe Bruton? Joe Bruton. He's passed away now, hasn't he? Yes. Because I had met Joe when I first yep. met you, yeah. He called me one day and he said, you need to come see me and see this place. And I said, okay. So I came up to see him. While I was there, Mr. Barber walked in. Now this is the original museum. Yep. Which is where Brian had the Motors headquarters yep. for those people who don't remember where the old museum is. Yep. Yeah. So Mr. Barber had the idea of racing some vintage bikes to promote the museum. So that's what he was doing and Joe was running the team. The team being Joe and Stephen Matthews. Mm -hmm. um, after talking to Mr. Barber that day, he found out where I had been and what I had been doing and all that. So now suddenly you're racing and your, mechan your mechanical stuff, it all makes sense. Yeah. Well, he hired me to be a mechanic to help Joe. Oh, fantastic. But during that, he found out I raced. So he put me on a bike at Daytona the first year I came to work for him, and it just went from there. So let me ask you a question. Do you remember what your first impressions were of Mr. Barber when you met him? I mean, sure you'd heard about him and in walks Mr. Barber. What are your first impressions? Because I know a lot of people meet him and have the same thing. I thought he was a really down-to-earth, real guy uh, and someone that you could believe what he said easy to talk to. I really didn't know his influence, you know. I didn't really care about that either at the time. Um, I just thought he was a really nice man. It's kind of interesting, isn't it, how that just completely changed your life, that one moment. It did. Yeah, one call, one visit, one meeting, yep. and your life completely changed. Yep, it did. So you take off to Daytona, racing for Mr. Barb, and we're in the old museum now, so a lot of people, like I say, they know the new <coughs> museum, but they wouldn't have known those days. What did you race that first time? He had just purchased two patents. Were they called moto patents? Or yep. Just, yes, yeah. Um, and he wanted me to ride one of them at Daytona, so I did, but before we went, I found out kind of accidentally how much that bike was worth. It made me really nervous. So I went to him and I said, Mr. Barber, I know what this thing's worth. If something happens to this thing, there's no way I can ever pay you for it. He looked at me and he said, you don't worry about that. You go out there and ride that thing. If you have to get off of it and set it on fire or save yourself, you do that. We can buy another one. <laughs> That's fantastic, huh? And so it took the worry of, of riding a priceless motorcycle yes. away. Yeah. It still it still does. It weighs on my mind, but You have to override that though. Yes, you do. I mean So I have a question to ask you. You just jogged a memory for me. My uh, dear friend Brian raced an FCR four hundred and I actually have it. I have his old race bike at home. And one year we were at Daytona and I think John Surtees was racing a motor pattern. Was that anything to do with you guys when Surtees was at Daytona on a pattern? Was it one of yours? I 
don't remember him being there that first year. Yeah, he was. He was there. He didn't ride it, though. It actually broke in practice. Okay, because we were there one year, and Surtees was on a, a pattern. I don't riding. remember him riding that, but that doesn't mean he didn't. I didn't know if that was about the same thing. Sorry, that was just a memory I had of being at Daytona at that era, mm -hmm. of Surtees showing up. He was kind of on his own, and he had the bike, and so... That may have been before my time. Maybe, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just remember we were, you know, in awe that we'd just met him, you know, and he was so humble and down to earth. Because we did get those bikes from him, so that's very possible. He rode them before Interesting. I came Interesting. I had not thought about that for 20 years. Thank mm -hmm. you for jogging that memory. But So this started your relationship with Mr. Barber, racing motorcycles. And, of course, it wasn't very long after that that we came here to the new museum, right? Was um, it a few years? It was probably eight or ten years before we came here. Oh, okay, okay. So that whole time you're... So you did you now start to restore bikes, or were you just maintaining the race bikes? Well, we pretty much restored the race bikes after every race, if you want to look at it that way. Um, so I, I really didn't become a restorer until we moved here. Was that really just Mr. Barber's need for the bikes to be perfect every time? Yes. I mean, they, not every time, but almost every time after a race, they'd get painted, the engines would be gone through. And he was very serious about winning. And of course, we were up against Dave Roper and Team Obsolete at the time, who were the giants of vintage racing at the time. And he really wanted to beat them, so whatever you need to do this, you do it. So how did the balance of power go? So that's Rob Ayanucci, who mm -hmm. was Team Obsley, and Dave Roper was his lead rider. Yep. And then it was against Mr. Barber's team with you. Yes. Were you the primary racer, or was Joe racing? Steven was the primary racer. And you were racing with mm -hmm. him. And how did the balance of power go between you in those years, race wins, championships? It took us a while to kind of get our feet on the ground because they, they, um, Dave and Rob had been doing this for forever. So they knew, you know, the bikes, we were racing G50s. They knew the ins and outs of them and the intricacies and what they wanted and all that kind of stuff. And of course, Dave is Dave. He's, a, he's one of my heroes. Blindingly fast on a motorcycle. Oh, yes. Yeah. Totally fast. So, I don't know. I would have to go back and look, but I think the first year or two, they, they beat us often. So it took us a while to, you know, get up to speed with them. But that was, um, that was really fun and very challenging. But you started winning as the years went by? Well... Dave used to race two classes, the 500 and 350. Mr. Barber decided, and I think the second year I was here, he decided he wanted me to beat Dave in the 350 class and let Steven take over the 500 class. Because um, it kind of was counterproductive for two of us to be in the 500 class. Steve was always a little bit faster than me. So anyway, Mr. Barber, provided me a bike to do the 350 class with. Uh, up until that point, I was helping Steve and Joe keep his bike up 
and mine. Uh, when the 350 thing came along, that kind of changed, and I became sort of my own, you know, deal. Um, and the bike I had was a, it was a Honda 305 that had been modified extensively. It bored out to a 350 and a lot of changes in the engine and it took me a while to get that thing developed enough that it was reliable. It really wasn't very reliable to start with. In the end, it made nearly the horsepower the G50 did, but it had a really short fuse. So I think the second year I was uh, racing Dave, again I'd have to go back and look at this, but I think I beat him every race that year except one and the bike blew up. So the persistence paid off basically. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a whole period of time, six or seven years, working mm -hmm. at the old museum and you're really just principally maintaining, tuning and running the race bikes and the race team. Yeah. So that must have been a really, really fun it was fun period so we got to the point where we'd beaten Dave and Team Obsolete and um, kind of been been there done that kind of thing There's how was Steve doing against him in the 500 class at that time Steven won that two or three times okay so this is some quite intense rivalry going on between oh, it, these yeah, two teams really, yeah it was the most intense racing I've ever been involved with um, yeah. So that kind of ended. There was really no need to keep doing that because we'd done it. Dave and them kind of backed off a little bit and there really wasn't anybody to really race with us anymore. So about that time, George Beale started a series in England, or actually in Europe, and it was called Inca. And he is very connected over there and he was started his series in conjunction with World Superbike so we were a support race for World Superbike oh that's kind of what year was that uh, that was about 1998-9 somewhere in there so I got to go over there and that was really fun what were you racing at that time G50s. Were they original G50s or were they the retrofit ones? Now? Replicas. Replicas, yeah. No one raced the original ones anymore. Right? Dave did. Wow. And we have some, but they're so valuable that, you know, you can buy a replica for quite a bit less than a real yeah, one. Yeah, so. and, and the replica's legal in that class. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you would take these lovely old G50 replicas over to Europe. Mm -hmm. So what tracks did you get to ride? Oh man, we went to, uh, I think they called it the A1 ring then, which yep, is now yep. it's a Red Bull Sucks. ring. We went to Nürburgring, uh, Donington, can't remember the rest of them. Um, but this must have been fantastic because you're racing in front of a world superbike crowd oh, at this point. So you've got huge crowds beautiful. and beautiful racetracks. And then beautiful. when you're not on the bike, you're watching, who was, Foggy was yep. at the top of his game then, Colin yep. Edwards. He was, yeah. Bayless coming along. Yep. So you're getting to see all the superstars of yep. the era and yep. <laughs> you get there racing with them. Yeah, it was fantastic. Mm -hmm. So that lasted about a year. And then I think the next year, George got hooked up with a, and I forget what they call it, but they raced big trucks, big diesel trucks. 
Oh, yeah, didn't Steve Parrish get into yes. that? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So we were the sideshow for them then. Oh. That was really cool. Those things, they're amazing. Madness. It is. <laughs> um, so they would have a day where you could ride in the truck with them. Those things are fast. Yeah. They I guess have, when they're not hauling 32 tons. Yeah, it's just a tractor, if you will. Yeah. Um, but they have, I forgot the numbers now, like a big truck like that's got like, I don't know, 2,000 foot-pounds of torque or something like that. They accelerate like you wouldn't believe. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they're not pulling all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So you so you would take the G50 and you'd go and follow that series. Yep. Yep. Where was the this museum, you know, we're obviously now sitting in the new Barber Motorsports Museum. Where was the development of that at this time? Uh, at that point, I believe it was kind of in the thinking stages yeah so how was that for you when you realized life was going to get to change you know you're working out at the old museum you're doing your racing now suddenly you've got this new big vision mr barber's vision for this new facility how was that time frame for you that was very exciting um you know to come out here before anything was here there wasn't even a road into here uh, and you look out here and it's, it's, you know, like looking at those trees over there, there's nothing. You're just looking at a huge piece of land mm -hmm. with trees and rivers and yep. hillsides. But when they started moving dirt, especially when they, when they kind of got the track sculpted like they wanted and put down a dirt road, if you will. Yeah. I rode my motorcycle around that one day. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, this is going to be good. Yeah. yeah. Did you have any input to the racetrack and the yeah. layout? So you were sort of, and who was the designer of the racetrack? Alan Wilson. Okay, so he did uh, Miller and yeah, he's done a lot of a number of other tracks, yeah. didn't he? Yeah. So you actually would get to spend time with him and a little bit. I don't know that I had a lot of influence on it, but Mr. Warr would ask me what I thought about it, which mm. is one reason I rode my bike around it while it was dirt, just to see. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So that must have been very exciting times. It yeah. was. It was yeah. very exciting. So when you moved in here, is that when you took over as the race restoration expert or? Well, after the building was finished, um, it took about probably two years, maybe longer, to get all the displays out, get the boxes built. You know, that's a time consuming thing. And were you working on that project? Yes, that, yeah. that's what we did for me and Joe and one other guy. That's what we did all day long, every day, for two or three years. Was just getting everything where you could see what was on yep. display. So you weren't actually focusing on racing so much then? No, racing was over by then. Yeah. Did you come back to racing? No. No, so th the race career was over when you moved in here? Yes. But I mean, you've done a lot of parade laps and ridden a lot yeah. of really interesting bikes since then. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. But you actually haven't had a race series? No. Uh, I did do some, I'm going to call it side work with a superbike team during that time period, which was also very fun. Um, we went to Suzuka a couple years and did the eight hour, which that was um, very cool to watch. Were you there as a mechanic? Yes. Yeah. And who was your rider and bike at that time? Uh, Jordan Zoke and um, I think we had Gobert one year. Well, Jordan Zoke has won multiple Canadian yeah. champions. I mean, hasn't he won them all for like 78 yeah. years or something? Yeah. 
Yep. It's the Jordan Zoak Championship, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. I don't think anyone else has ever won it. I don't think, think so either. I, don't I think he got beat last year, though. Okay, so you, so interesting. So you were with him in Suzuka. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, the cool thing about that was, you know, you're right next to like the Yoshimura Factory Superbike Superbike Endurance Team and Yamaha and all that. That was pretty amazing. We tried to figure out our own you know, how to change tires quickly and all that stuff. Those guys, it's amazing. They practice that the whole time they're there. And some of the things they do to make all that happen is pretty cool. Like the axles, they had a something in the gun, on the socket on the air gun, that gripped that axle and pulled it out. And they threw that gun away. And got a whole new gun that already had an axle in it with it turned ready to yep. tighten. But before they do that, they stick that axle in the freezer so it'll, you know, go in easy. All the little things they done did were just very cool. You just wouldn't, I guess they'd just been refining and practicing and... I went over there and watched them practice and they're so regimented that everybody has to have even their hands in the right place at the right time. You know? Yeah. There's no way you can replicate that no. when you're just all showing up. We didn't have resources or people or anything to do all yeah. that. But, yeah. but still an amazing experience. It's you know? very amazing. So when you came back, now you're sort of settled in down here. So this is really when your restoration career yeah. starts picking up. Yeah. And how did you find that transition now you're not sort of racing? I mean, did you, was it like a big learning curve to start getting into these older and older bikes? Not really. Just kind of the same thing. Um, you mentioned how quickly I can do things. I think some of oh. that comes from my racing, you know. Yeah, because, I mean, the listeners don't get to see it because I'm obviously in and out here. But, I mean, you know, my story of the week is, I mean, I popped down to see you yesterday morning. And for those listening, um, I, down in Chuck's office, and he, you've got a, a, a Rob North TZ250. It's a 1977, so custom frame built for the Yamaha two-stroke racing engine. And it was the frame, the shock, the engine, the electronics, and all the stuff were on it. And we came upstairs, and I thought, oh, let me nip down and take a picture of the bike. And I come down by lunchtime, and you've already got the, the frame. It, there's a shot-blasted frame on the bench. I'm like, where did the TT250 go? <laughs> and you've completely stripped. And I came this morning, and now the frame and the swing I'm already painted. And yesterday morning, it was almost a complete motorcycle on your bench. So I guess that's your racing thing where you just do yeah. things so quick. Uh, yeah, well, when you're under the gun at the track, you know, you have to get things done, you know, or you're going to miss the race. So. so you find that that efficiency probably really helps you. Yes, with, I yeah. think so. Yes. Yeah. I learned a lot of how to do things with all that, you know. Yeah. I'm sure there's, a, you know, people who've seen you through the window and seen the bikes about whatever, a thousand questions to you, but I mean, Surely one of the biggest questions is, what's it like to ride a Briton and what's it like to take a Briton to pieces? You know, I get asked that a lot. and I That's don't probably know the number one question. It is. Mm -hmm. I really don't know how to answer that. Um, um, Do you look at it just like another motorcycle? No. No, no. <laughs> I mean, you know you're working on something. Yeah. Um, that's another bike. When we got that thing... The intention was not to race it, but Mr. Barber decided he wanted to see it raced. So we did. 
Where did you race the Britain? We took it to Talladega for an armor race. It dropped a valve seat during practice and pretty much destroyed the engine. Ouch. Yeah. So after that, he decided not to race it. Um, but I was pretty nervous about riding that thing anyway because of what it is. Mm. I mean, at the time, it was, I think, I'm not sure about this, but compared to now, they're worth 10 times what they were then, maybe. Do you think anyone could put the value on a Briton? Now? Now, what would, I mean, because no one would probably presume they ever want to sell one, would they? There's been a couple sold in the last few years, two or three years. I don't know what they went for, but I'm sure it's seven figures. Wow. I mean, they're just unobtainium, aren't they? Mm-hmm. So how many times have you actually ridden the Briton? I haven't really kept up with it. But it's been a number of, a lot of times. Oh, yeah. It? It's, it's, it's been ridden quite a bit. Yeah. Difficult bike to ride? No, not really. Um, it's a very easy bike to ride, but I'm kind of short and that bike's pretty tall and that's a little bit of a problem for me. Um, I think they kind of developed that bike around Andrew Stroud. Who's taller. Who's tall and mm. it fits him perfectly, but not so much me. So that's a little bit of a problem for me. Um, and it's because of what it is. You obviously stressed it. Crashing is not allowed on that. Crashing's bike. not an option, right? No. What are the when you're riding a Briton? I mean, what are the primary characteristics? I mean, obviously it's a V-twin. I mean, is it weird handling because of the nature of the suspension? Is the engine odd? It handles very good, really good. Um, one of the best handling bikes I've ever ridden. When we first got it they sent one of their mechanics with it to train us you know how to work on it what to do and all that the first time i got on it i really didn't like it because it was the rear end i didn't know this at the time but they had set the rear end kind of low to andrew's liking oh interesting so i came in and i told guy that's the britain mechanic guy kingsbury i said this is feeling weird I don't like this and this is what it feels like and it's kind of chopper like on the front end sort of mm. he said okay so he went around and I think he raised the rear end perfect after that so if you would compare it wheelbase brake control wise what would be an equivalent for us in the modern world bike wise would it be more Moto2 spec would it be a superbike wheelbase I think it's MotoGP inspired. So it's <coughs> short wheelbase. It's not really short. I don't. Th I've never actually measured it, but it, I think it's a little bit on the long side. <coughs> but the guys that designed and worked on that bike, one of them is, uh, I think his name is Sinclair. He's an ex-MotoGP guy from before it was MotoGP. So, you know, they they did all that, and I guess they based their, how they built it on that information. Right. What about the engine characteristics? Super powerful or board spread of power? Yeah, it's very powerful. It's, um, engine's wonderful. Of course, it's a V-twin four-stroke, so it's got, it's not really very peaky, not really, but it definitely has a 
you know, sweet spot. Mm, mm. It's actually pretty easy to ride. Very, very fast, of course. So would you say that's one of the fastest bikes you've ever ridden and raced? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, what about when you, so I know you're probably one of the few people in the world that ever gets to take one of these things to pieces and put it back together. I mean, is it a complicated bike to work on? No, uh, the engine is actually pretty simple. I mean, it's a V-twin, it's a four valve head. There's not really that many pieces in the engine. Um, a modern, like a Suzuki GSX-R is much more complicated. Now the chassis, I wouldn't say it's complicated, but it's very different. Um, there are ways you can adjust the front end on this thing that, as far as I know, no other bike is capable of. So it's just complicated in that respect from mm -hmm. suspension? Yes. Because it's got a very unique suspension system. It does. And we don't see that now in modern bikes. You don't, and I think the reason why um, it has a lot of joints and ball ends and things like that, and they wear out fairly quick. Now the new Honda Goldwing has a very similar front end on it now. And from what I can read about that, I haven't ridden one of those, but people like that. It seems to work. Mm. But I guess you've got a lot less stress on a street bike and technology has developed a lot since True. John Britton did this. Yeah. True. So would you say overall, I mean, it must be hard to pick out a favorite bike, but the Britain's got to be probably your favorite motorcycle. Oh, here. definitely, yes. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that, that thing is, what, 25 years old now? It still looks futuristic. Yeah, it's almost a timeless piece, isn't yes. it? Yes, yes. Yeah. So y there's so many projects that you, you work on here. Um, so just to backtrack out to when you started here, so you really started getting heavily into restoring race bikes. So you only restore race bikes here. You don't do the street bikes or conventional stuff. No, Mr. Barber likes to keep the race bikes separate. And that's fine with me because that's really what I prefer doing. Right. So that allows you, so that allows you to stay in that area of research and development and things cross over. Yeah. So one of the projects that you've been working on um, in the last couple of years is the yellow tankers. Yes. And that's a really rare story, isn't it? It is. Um, I don't know if you could explain to the listeners what a yellow tanker is and what you've had to do, because I mean, it's a phenomenal story. Yes, it is. Um, well, to start with, Mr. Barber always wanted to have an example of every production racer Yamaha made. So he kind of charged me with doing that, and we got close to having <coughs> all of them. And during that time, I started hearing about this thing called a yellow tanker. Never heard of it, didn't know what it was. Um, so we bought a lot of motorcycles from a guy up in Oregon that had, a, I think there were 17 bikes in that lot with tons of parts. And in the process of sorting through those parts, I found some parts that were labeled yellow tanker. So that started a whole nother search. <laughs> uh, and I have a friend <coughs> that he's retired now, but worked at Yamaha for 37 years. He knew about yellow tankers, but had never seen one, but he knew the, you know, most of the story about them. So we started searching with his help 
he gave me a list from Yamaha with all the original owners of the yellow tankers, which at the time they called them RR250s. So Yamaha decided to make 10. This was their first effort at a factory production race bike. 1959? Yes. Um, they had kits you could put on YDS1s before that to turn a street bike. You know, but this was the first the first one that you and I could buy. So basically, this is this is a direct link from this to Fabio Quattararo's M1, right? Exactly. I mean, there's a there is a direct linear line between a yellow tanker and a modern day yep. M1. Yep, it is. It's fabulous. Yeah. So, from that list, there were two brothers in Ohio that each had one. Well, after a lot of searching and I really can't tell you how this happened because little bits and pieces happen here and there and one thing leads to another. I found a phone number for one of the brothers. And I had discovered during all this that neither one of them were with us anymore, but one of them had a son. So anyway, I called this phone number for probably a year on and off. And I knew it was a good phone number because it went to an answering machine on therein, but I could never get anybody to call me back. So one day I'm searching around on the web and I saw a picture of a friend of mine with Jim back in the day at the racetrack with that bike. So I called Art and I said, Art, do you know this guy? He goes, oh yeah, he lives right down the road from me. He's not here anymore, but his son's here and blah, blah, blah. Uh, would you like for me to go see him and have him call you? Yes, please. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so he did. Paul called me back in a couple of weeks. He said, yes, I do have some motorcycles. I don't have either one of those anymore. I don't know what happened to them, but you're welcome to come see what I have. So we went there. Uh, and it's out in the middle of nowhere in Ohio, digging around in a barn, dirt floor. By that time, I knew all the serial numbers. It's only a four-digit serial number, so it's easy to remember. I dug a chassis out of the dirt. That was one of them. Looked so up you in the knew you were onto something. Yep. Yeah. Looked up in the rafters. There's a gas tank. So Paul got excited about this. Then he goes hmm, let me go in the house, I'll be right back. He came out of the house with a box of parts, which were parts to that bike. He goes, let me go over here to this other building, came out of that with the engine. So we ended up with about 70% of that bike. The important things being the wheels and engine and frame and stuff like that. Great, so we started digging through his other stuff. He probably had a dozen motorcycles in that barn. One of them was pushed off in a corner and it was painted blue and white and it had, I thought it was a TD1, which we weren't looking for a TD1 because we already had all those. On closer inspection, it was a yellow tanker. It was a yellow tanker that they had modified back in the days to keep it competitive, but there was the other one. Uh -huh. So we actually had both of them. Wow. So you got those two back. Yes. Where did the third one you have come from? Okay, during this time, I found one 
in Australia that a collector down there had bought and shipped that he was going to restore. He passed away and his wife was selling the collection. So we bought that one right before we discovered these two. And that's how we ended up with three. Uh, just, uh, just to jump in here, you know, um, I'm sure for anyone listening to the podcast and you know, hearing you talk about this stuff, to me, it's like, it is really wonderful when you come to uh, Barber and you see these bikes and they're restored. But to me, the fascinating part is sometimes, even just like this story, how you found them and the research and the luck. And it's almost like you have to be part-time archeologists, historians, you're not just restoring a motorcycle. Exactly. You're having to piece these things together and use these bits of information and find these clues. I mean, yes. this to me is always yes. almost not saying that the restoration is not fascinating because it is but then even so with the yellow tankers for me what was fascinating because I obviously I get to come in and I see you know, I see these staccato movements and the progress of stuff because I'll come and see you when there's a bunch of frames and I come to see you when there's an engine in the frame and I come and it's completed and to me with the yellow tankers is how much you actually had to make because it just doesn't exist anymore yes um so you're really, as a historian, you're sort of taking your best guess at that point? Yes. Would that be a yes. I mean, a lot of times that's all you have to go on. Uh, with those things, there's hardly any information out there, very few pictures. Most of the people that were involved with them aren't with us anymore. Mm. Yamaha corporate knows nothing about them. I'm sure there's somebody there that does, but I haven't made that connection with them. But we occasionally have people from there come here they've never heard of them um, so those were very difficult to restore and such significant motorcycles because i mean this is the beginning of yamaha's foray into yep. production built racing motorcycles specifically yep yep it is and you have three of them here we do yeah what was the length of time when you got everything back from then to completion, because I think you might still be working on them to some degree, right? Uh, they're about, well, two of them are completely done. Uh, one of them is about 95%. Mm. Uh, so it took about two years to do those bikes. Mm. Um, and you had to make shock absorbers and gas caps and fuel tanks, forks silly things like perches and levers which you can buy those all day long but they're not the right ones and no other bike that i know of uses those so i had to make them so wh when you're making parts do you make that's something you learned along the way or something you were trained to do because obviously you've got to use all the equipment uh, was that a necessity thing that you just came to fabrication I've always liked making things. Um, Apart from the watches. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so about, I guess it's been 10 years ago maybe, I bought a little home CNC mill just because I wanted to learn how to do that. Mm. So that's kind of where it all started. And I have some friends that helped me um, further my education with that. You know, I mean, you can figure it out yourself, but if somebody shows you, it takes a whole lot less time. Mm. So um, that's where all that started. And then 
these things came along and I thought, I think I can do this. So I tried it and it worked and, you know. So that's how you were able now to make the pieces? Because yeah. if you weren't able to make the pieces, I mean, there just isn't stuff available for these mostly. No, it's not. Um, this is a really silly thing. Like the petcocks on these bikes, they're very unusual. They're not attached to the fuel tank. They're remotely mounted with a fuel line from the tank to the petcocks and then to the carburetors. I've never seen any petcock like that, not really. Didn't have one. Had some fuzzy pictures of a petcock, but it wasn't good enough that I could figure out exactly what it looked like. So in all this research and where the rest of the bikes were, I managed to find two other ones out of the 10. One of them is in California. Is it restored? No. No. So I made contact with a guy that owns it and I went to see him. Um, the bike's in pretty rough shape, but it has a petcock on it. He let me borrow the petcock. I brought it home, modeled it, made a few, sent him one and his original one back. And that's how that came to be. So quick shameless plug about the advanced design center. Obviously, this is the great thing now having Brian up here. When you get stuck on these things, he's helping you. Yes. Um, yeah, he's almost made it too easy. <laughs> like that petcock, I had to draw <laughs> by hand, measuring it, you know, trying to get the angles right. Well, now he's been to Brian, he 3 these scans, he, he it scans puts it in the it. computer. There you go, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's almost made it too easy. Yeah. I love it. But it, it's interesting because it's almost as if there's, like with the yellow tankers, you know, 1959, you know, four digit VIN numbers, very little information photographically, because obviously we didn't have the web and, you know, but then we get to one of the more recent restorations you've done. It's the, I think it's a 1966 or 1967 Daytona 200 Triumph racer. Was it 66? Yes, 66, yes. So even though that whole archaeological dig as you uncovered it, historical research, you actually can go back to books in the Barber Library and find information about that bike. And yes. Even in just that 10, or well less than 10 years, suddenly there's a lot more information yes. than was available when you're doing the early Yamahas. Yes, and there are parts available also. Because I find that a fascinating restoration, and for the listeners, you're actually restoring a bike that raced the Daytona 200 in 1966. And it wasn't a Gary Nixon bike, but it was the same era that Gary Nixon was racing. Yes. And you found this bike in very, very rough condition. It had been modified to be a flat tracker, and you've put it back to being a road race machine. Right, yes. But that's actually, I guess, it's, to say easier, maybe is a bit of not the right word, but it, it's that's not quite as difficult as the tankers. No, it was a lot easier. Um, I mean, not that it's easy, but I mean, it, you, at least you've got some historical information and research and books yes. that have been written. And also along the way, uh, a person in Texas who's an expert on Triumphs found out we had this bike and contacted me and he helped me a lot with the details on this bike. Mm. He has a lot of records from back then and pictures and he actually has the next year of that bike. So that was very helpful. So it's quite interesting how within a decade we were keeping better records and it's making your life a lot easier. Yes. 
Yes. Yeah. So to finish up on the yellow tankers, so where will the yellow tankers be displayed if someone wants to come see them? Uh, they're going to be on the third floor. Thinking about that. The new that's actually second floor in the new building in the Yamaha yeah. display. But the interesting thing about it is, is you've sort of put them back it, in three different stages. There's sort of a stock one, a lightly modified one, and a fully modified one. So if someone comes to see the yellow tankers, you can visualize the different things that they were doing with them back in the day. Is that yes. correct? Yes. I didn't see the need in putting all three of them back to stock. Why not show what people were doing back then? So yeah. we have, a, like you said, a stock one, a lightly modified one, and a more modified one. So it's really nice, so you, you don't just see the same mm -hmm. bike. And I mean, they're just fabulous, fabulous bikes, aren't they? Yeah, I think so. And another interesting story about the yellow part of them, I don't know this to be true, but I believe it because it fits the story. Uh, the distributor importer at the time was a guy named George Caswell. He was the guy that received all of them before they came. Yamaha asked him what color he wanted them to be and he said yellow so that's what they painted them and I believe that's where the Yamaha yellow thing came from. Well presumably because obviously mm -hmm. it was the first production race back mm -hmm. there. Yeah. Have you, um, because also at the same very, not long after, Bermuda started building frames for these Yamaha race bikes too, didn't they? Yeah, they did, didn't they? Yeah. yeah very very early on mm -hmm. which is interesting because you have a you're currently doing um a tz 250 which is what 1977 yes so 20 years later but it's housed in a rob north frame we were talking about it earlier how quickly you pulled it to pieces so that's kind of interesting that even in 20 years there's a lot of evolution from the yellow tankers yes there is it, it's amazing to kind of look at all that and um that now that you mention that, the TZ125 that I'm doing also is about 1994, which is... And it looks like, it looks like... It's light years Light ahead. years ahead of the yes. TZ250, yes. isn't it? Yeah. But that's the beautiful thing. When you come here to the museum, though, you can come into the Yamaha area, you can walk through the evolution of all of these. Yes. And what would have been the very last... TZ250. Would it be Rich Oliver's championship bike? I think so. Thereabout. Maybe a little way, one way or the other. So yeah. Colin Edwards' championship bike wouldn't have been the last in the evolution. No. 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 He was um, Rich continued it a few years after Colin, you know, went overseas, I think. Yes. And then when he, it, when, I guess the evolution of the TZ250 stopped when MotoGP went to four strokes only and it killed a yeah. 125 two stroke and 250. Yeah, I think so, so. yep. But that's a beautiful thing here is you have now from Yellow Tankers to Rich Oliver's bike. The beginning to the end. Yeah, yeah. Do you have anything missing in that chronology? I don't think so. Um, we don't have every year model of every bike, but some of them are so similar, there's not much point. Yeah. So. No, we don't really have every one of them, but we've got enough to, you know, kind of cover it all. Mm. Now, what's interesting is, I mean, I, I don't even, you probably couldn't remember how many bikes you've ever restored. I mean, I oh, don't know. <laughs> <laughs> 
But it's funny that you said this morning you think that the little TZ125 is one of the favorite bikes you've ever restored. That was a fun restoration. I just love that little thing. The engineering on it is fabulous. And what, what makes it so fabulous to you? It's just so finely engineered. Uh, it's got a cassette transmission on it. You know, it, it's a purebred race bike. There's nothing on it that doesn't need to be there. But As opposed to so many of these things like the Triumph, Daytona mm -hmm. Racer, and even the Yellow Tankers, they were all, even to some degrees, a yep. compromise. Yep. And this thing's totally uncompromised. Yes, yes. Well, what I thought was amazing was when you showed me inside the engine, the porting inside. Wow, that's crazy, isn't it? That thing has, I think, 10 ports in that cylinder. There's a port everywhere there can be a port. <laughs> but it allows it to make what, about 42? 42 horsepower, they claim. Yeah, which in a bike weighing? The specs say 157 pounds. I'm not sure I believe that, but that's what it says. Yeah, that's just crazy, isn't it? Yeah. So how long will it take you now to finish that restoration? Uh, I'm waiting on some parts. Um, they'll be here sometime after the first of the year, and they're basically just bolt-on things, so it'll be done very soon after that. So you finished the yellow tank as you finished that, now you've got your Rob North. Do you have any big projects in the pipeline? Not really, no. But is that typical for your career where you just, you're working on what you're working and something just finds you? Um, that's kind of typical. Um, I usually have three or four or more projects going because like this TZ. You stop on one, you can move to yeah, the other. I'm waiting on parts for it. And I kind of like it that way because sometimes I get a little bit I just want to get away from one for a minute and go do something else, you know. Where can we see the Daytona 200 racer, the 66 Triumph? Where will that be? Good question. I haven't seen... Is it, is it on the floor now? Oh, no, no. Oh, you mean the bike? The bike, yeah. It's in the warehouse at the moment. Okay. I think they're going to probably build a kind of a special display for it. Because that really is a very special bike. It is, it? yes. Yeah. Tell, tell me just a, a few little points about it. Because, I mean, we, we think of the Daytona 200. I mean, it, it was a Triumph 500. Yes. Basically a street bike. Yes. And Edward Turner, who was running Triumph at the time, didn't want anything to do with racing, so they sort of built it in a private shed. I believe you're right. And, of course, they were. this was a time era when suddenly Honda had the 500 with electric start and 45 horsepower. So Triumph were kind of crapping their pants at this point that their <laughs> yeah. antiquated old pushrod 500 wasn't going to do it so yeah. they decided they better go win the Daytona 200 to and they did um, I have a lot of respect for those guys I think they were very smart and very creative with what they did uh, they did things differently than the Japs did mm. but they pulled it off um, and I don't, I don't know, I didn't really research the history on it, what you're talking about, all that deep, because it... You're more interested in the function yeah, of what right. needed to happen, yeah. Mm -hmm. I just thought it was really interesting that Edward Turner had no interest in racing, and these guys almost built it in the shed without him knowing. They were outlaws, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. And I just thought it was really interesting, that what, and, you know, again, for the listeners of the cast, I mean, I have this wonderful privilege that I get to come in watch what you're doing and I just really love it when like you'll show me things like come over and look at this and you show me the points and they're out of a marine engine yeah 
Because suddenly, I guess what, somebody figured out they could rev higher with those points. I think so, yeah. That's what I mean. Those guys were smart. <laughs> they were really smart. Yeah. I mean, all the things they had to do to, I mean, to get it from, what, 28 horsepower to 35 or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we look yep. at stuff today. It's fabulous. Well, Chuck, thanks for coming on the cast. And, and you know, you say you've had this amazing career here, Barbara. And any things that stand out as a highlight of all the years that you've been here, what would you say is kind of some of the defining moments of your career in restoring, racing, building? I mean, all and all the famous people and races you've met and raced with. Yes, uh, thank you for having me, first of all. Um, I've been very fortunate. I've got to meet some of my heroes that otherwise I never would have been able to. Um, there's been times when you know, we get all kinds of people in here. One day I walk in my office and there's some guys in there on a tour looking around. And I'm looking at one of them and I'm thinking, I know who you are. It was Udo Giedel. You know, you just never know. One day I'm standing at the front door. Somebody walks in. I look up. It's Eddie Lawson. The sad thing about it is these young guys, or girls, and rightfully so, I guess, they didn't know who he was. Yeah. <laughs> and he's real humble. He didn't care, but it just, you know, you never know. So that's some of the things that have been um, really amazing to me that I've been able to do things like that. Well, and you've been inside Kevin Schwantz's Grand Prix 500 yep. championship winning motorcycle. I mean, yep. you've seen inside motorcycles that most people have only ever seen on racetracks, right? True, yes. Well, Chuck, thank you so much again, and uh, well, we'll come back and get you again and tell some more stories. Thank you. Appreciate thank you, sir. It. You're welcome.